we looked last week at Matthew 5, 17 and 18, and it's there that Jesus gave and provided his reason and purpose in coming. He cleared it up, what was being said, what was being assumed. Oh, he doesn't care anything about the law. He's here just to do away with the law. He wants to do away with the Old Testament as we know it. They didn't call it that. I mean, that was a scripture at that point. But, you know, that was what was being said and assumed about Jesus. He cleared it up. He said, I'm not here to destroy the law and the prophets. I, quite the opposite. I'm here to fulfill them. They're what I'm about, and they're about me. They point to me, and I'm here, and I'm going to fulfill all of it. And then he said, and because it's that important that that's done, not even the heavens or the earth will be able to affect that. Not one little tiny detail of God's written word is going to pass away and be absolved until the very heavens and earth are gone. So I'm going to preserve the entire universe to preserve the purpose of God's Word, is what he was saying. This week, we're looking at the result of that. He gave the purpose of why he was there, why it was so important for God's Word to be preserved, and how he thought of God's Word, how much he valued it. Now we're looking today at the result of that and the application of that for Jesus' followers for his disciples, for the citizens of his kingdom, which you are if you're in Christ. So these verses, they were of profound importance to the original audience there on the mount with the Sermon on the Mount, but they, church, are of profound importance for us too. So this is the result of what Jesus said about why he came, and about how much he valued God's word. This is what it means for the Christian, for the citizen of the kingdom, how we are to respond to that, how we are to apply what Jesus said in the previous verses. So with all that in mind, look with me, please, Matthew 5, focusing in on verses 19 and 20. Matthew 5, 19 and 20. In verse 19... God's Word, Jesus here speaking, continuing his thoughts. Therefore, which obviously points back to 17 and 18, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, some commands were weightier than others. It was all important, all part of God's law, but some carried more weight, where that was more significant. But Jesus is saying, in light of all that I just said about why I'm here and how much I value the written word, therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's important to note here that Jesus did not say, won't be in the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say, you know, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands, teaches others to do the same, will not be in the kingdom of heaven. That's not what he said. It's important to note that. Very important to note that. These people that he's speaking of, hypothetically at this point, as an example, it doesn't mean necessarily that they aren't already part of the kingdom, that they're not genuinely part of the kingdom. It means that there is some really bad choices being made on their part 
that they're not living up to their calling, they're not fulfilling the responsibility that everybody in the citizen of the kingdom of heaven has. And so certainly there's going to be a consequence for that, but this is not talking about people losing salvation. We need to get that very, very clear. That's not what Jesus is alluding to. That's not what he's saying. What he's pointing to is the fact that there is a varied reward reality in the kingdom of heaven. And that's something that we know throughout Scripture. Believers receiving or not receiving rewards in heaven, it's frequently mentioned, frequently taught throughout the New Testament. Jesus went on to talk about that throughout his ministry, and we see that throughout the Gospels. Paul talked about that fact. Peter, John, they all, all taught very clearly about the reality of rewards or the reality of not receiving specific rewards or not as many compared to their fellow believers. But the thing that is common about all of those is that that doesn't mean that they're not in the kingdom. That doesn't mean that they're just excluded from it. And the other thing about the rewards, you know what we do with those rewards, don't you? What Scripture teaches about that? We throw them in worship and honor at the feet of Jesus. Everything we do is about Him and should be for Him. And even the rewards we get for faithful service, for taking the responsibilities on us seriously and living those out, the rewards we might get for that, that's all for Him too. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying as detrimental as what He's describing is, He's not saying that that means that they aren't going to be allowed to be in heaven or that they won't be there. They will be in the kingdom of heaven, even if they will be considered least compared to others. It's an important distinction there. It's also important to note what Jesus said about teaching others in this first verse. He says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same. In other words, they're failing to fulfill the responsibility they have. They're, they're not being as faithful as they should. doesn't just affect them. It affects other people too. It reminds me of the warning in James 3, 1, where James says this, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It's scary, isn't it? Those of you who have the privilege and the solemn responsibility of teaching, especially as it relates to God's Word, this is a scary, scary statement, but it's an important statement that we should all take very, very seriously. And here's a little secret about this concept, a little secret to keep in mind. Jesus' warning here in verse 19 of Matthew 5 and James' warning that I just read, it doesn't just apply to formal or official teachers. Every person teaches. Every person teaches. Every person influences. Every single person has the high calling, every believer I'm talking about, has the high calling to teach and communicate to others about the reality of their redemption. 
every believer has the responsibility to teach by word and by action about the Lord Jesus that they claim to know and to point people to Him. And whether you do that well or not, everyone is teaching. We're all communicating by our example and how we live our life and by what we say or the lack of what we say. We're teaching others that it's really not important. If we're not proclaiming the realities of the gospel and of the kingdom that we claim to be a part of, then we're communicating something, aren't we? We're communicating that it's not really that important to us. People are able to know pretty quickly what we worship and what we value by how we live our life and by what comes out of our mouth. We communicate that really clearly and all the time. So we're always teaching. We're always shaping. We're always influencing everyone around us in one way or another. And so we all need to be very careful, Christians. We all need to be very careful and intentional about what we're communicating, how we're communicating it. Important things to keep in mind. Back to Matthew 5.19, with what he said there and what I read. A question needs to be asked, why? Why? Why did Jesus say this about the law, and why did he say this to his followers so seriously? Why do you say all this about the law and make this application to his followers, to citizens of his kingdom, and make sure that they understood their responsibility for communicating it, for teaching it and teaching it well, for teaching the importance of God's word, for upholding the written word, for not failing to deliver the whole counsel of the word of God, as Paul said to the Ephesians before he left. He said, I did not fail the whole time I was with you. I did not hold anything back. I communicated to you the whole counsel of the Word of God, whether it was comfortable or not, whether it was easy to hear or not, I gave you the whole thing. We're responsible to do the exact same thing. Why did Jesus, though, make such an important focus on that and on the old covenant and the law of God and making sure to honor that and elevate that and point people back to that? Why? I mean, if he was coming to fulfill the law and the prophets, why did he spend so much time pointing back to it and talking about its relevance? The fact that it was still very much relevant and beneficial. Why? Well, I want to suggest to you first that it's because the law was never a bad thing. The law was never a bad thing. We on the other side of the Old Covenant, here in the New Covenant, under the New Testament, we have this frequent practice of viewing anything about the law, anything with the law, as being bad. The law was bad. That's why Jesus came to to usher in the New Covenant, because the law was bad. No, no. That's the wrong perspective. That's the wrong mindset to have. The law was never in itself a bad thing. Why? Because it was given by a good, holy God. Therefore, it was impossible for the law of God to be a bad thing. You're with me on that? You understand that? A good, holy God gave His, His law. So we need to remember that. That it was given by a good, holy God. Therefore, the law itself 
was good and holy. The Apostle Paul tells us in very clear detail that important distinction, that important fact in Romans 7, 11 through 12. I'm not going to go there, but in Romans 7, 11 and 12, he talks about that very fact that the law isn't the problem. The law is good. The law is holy. We're the problem. We're not holy. And by the law pointing out our sin, it stirs up all of that and it points to that and it shows our sinfulness. And it shows that we don't fulfill the law, but the law is not bad. The law is good and holy. You need to remember, believers, that at its heart, the law reflects the heart of God. At its heart, the law reflects the heart of God. At its essence, the law shows the essence of God's pure, perfect character. That was what the law always did. It reflected and pointed to God's own heart, His own perfect character, His integrity, His holiness. It showed that. It held up His holiness as the standard, the right standard. The problem is no one could ever reach that standard on their own because of their fallenness and their sinfulness. And since Jesus, the one speaking here in the Sermon on the Mount, since He is God the Son, He shared the same character as His Father, and of course, He would also share the Father's view of His law. You see that logic, how that works? We're so used to seeing an absence of logic in our society, in our culture, it might take a while to recognize pure logic when we see it. But that's pure logic. God the Father gave His holy law. God the Son, who is the very nature of what the Father is, shares all of the Father's characteristics, His attributes, His heart, shares His purpose and His desire, and therefore the law of His Father would be valued and esteemed by God the Son. That's why he took it so seriously. That's why he honored it so much. That's why he elevated it. It's why he submitted fully to it. Just think about that for a second. The eternal word, Jesus, very God, the one that was in the beginning with God and was God, when he came to earth, he submitted fully to the law. That's astounding, isn't it? And it shows how much he valued the law of God. Fully honored it, fully submitted to it. And what we're seeing here in the Sermon on the Mount at this point, we see a clear expectation on the part of Jesus that all that would be his followers, all that would be citizens of his kingdom would do the same. That they too would honor God's law, that they would take it seriously, that they would fully submit to it as he did. And it's also very important to understand that until he went to the cross, until the curtain split in two, his disciples were still under the law, and here's the boom moment, and so was he. The very one that came to fulfill the law was under the law until he fulfilled it on the cross. Until that happened, the law was not fulfilled. None of it. 
The ceremonial part, the judicial part, none of it was fulfilled until he went to the cross and until the curtain split in two. Very important to understand that. That's made clear in Galatians 4.4 and Philippians 2.7-8. Again, not going to turn there, but those are references that are important to keep in mind that show that, that Jesus was just as much under the law as any other Jewish person. And he, he did that willingly. And so all this goes back to the verses we looked at in verses 17 and 18, where he said, I've come to fulfill, not abolish, not destroy. I've come to fulfill all that was already given, all that has already been handed down. And until heaven and earth pass away, not one little tiny detail will pass until all is fulfilled. This is what he's talking about. So what does all that mean for us personally, for you and me right here Right now, today. Christians don't live under the Mosaic judicial law. We live under grace through Christ, and hallelujah for that. But God's moral law should still be the Christian's moral compass. Don't miss that. We're not under the law. We're not under the weight of it. We're not under the obligation to it. That's why we're not going through Old Testament mosaic ceremony up here today. We're not under the minutiae, the detail, the ceremonial aspect of things. But God's moral law, which never, ever went away, should still be the Christian's moral compass every day. An example of that is the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are something that completely describes God's character, His holiness, and our response to it, and our response to one another. The bulk of the Ten Commandments are an upward thing. It's how we relate to and respond to God. Then the others are how we relate to and respond to one another. And it's all relevant. The Ten Commandments are timeless and always, always relevant. They are universal in their truth. They are universal in their application. So that's an example, a very good example, of the fact that God's moral law continues and should continue to guide us and inform us. It should be a guide for our own holy living, even as New Testament Christians. Our lives, believers, should still be a reflection of God's moral law. Because, as I said earlier, it reflects God's own character and holiness, which we are to do. A good example of this concept is a person that retires from a life of service in the military. Maybe, I know some of you that's true of. We've got Cormie here, who that's certainly true of, and others. And the thing that I've noticed about people that have spent a long time in the military, that that was their life, and then they're no longer in the military... You know what what they do, how they live their life? They still live it like a military person. The code of honor and the discipline that they received as part of their military experience, it doesn't just go away. It continues to inform and shape their life. They still live under the principles that they lived under all those years when they were under the authority of the military and their commanding officers. It continues to be the way they are. 
That's how it should be with us. That's how it is in relation to what I'm talking about here. We're not under the law. We're under grace. Praise God. That's an absolute fact, and we need to celebrate that and live accordingly. But God's moral law absolutely should still be what we live our lives according to. Let me say it this way. Liberty doesn't equal lawlessness. Liberty does not equal lawlessness. We have liberty. We are given liberty through Christ and in the Spirit. Paul spends a great deal of time talking about that, especially Galatians. We have liberty. But we are not to use the liberty we've been given through Christ to do something contradictory to Christ. That's so important to understand. We don't take the liberty Christ gave us and then we take it and we do something with it that is an absolute contradiction to Him or His character. Liberty doesn't equal lawlessness. It doesn't mean we just get to go run out and do whatever we want, live however we want, without any guidance, without any standard, without anything that we look to as a compass. No, it doesn't mean that. It doesn't equal that. And here's the other thing that I want to make sure to point out before we go on in this passage. Our honoring of God's law, our honoring of God's law, and our choosing to live according to it needs to be motivated by our love for God. That's the why we do that. That's the why. We don't honor God's law because we're in some sort of legalistic holding pattern We don't honor God's law so that He will like us more. We don't honor God's law and try to live according to it because that's what we need to do to get His favor. No, not at all. That's legalism. We've been set free from that. We honor God's law. We pursue God's law. We live according to God's law out of love for God. That's what needs to be our motivation. 1 John 5.3 tells us that in no uncertain terms. and This is from the NLT. Love, how clear it makes it. 1 John 5.3 says, Loving God means keeping His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. We need to believe that. The law of God, not only was it never a bad thing, but the law of God was actually never meant to restrict us or constrict us, or be like a prison for us. On the contrary, God's law is the only thing that actually will give us true freedom. True freedom and true life. God's law was given out of love for us. It was meant to protect us. It was meant to preserve us. It was meant to give us true freedom because it only can be found in Him. His commandments are not burdensome. And loving God means keeping His commandments. Well, with all that in mind, let's look at verse 20. And this is where Jesus really lowers the boom. Verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Let's remember the audience that he was talking to. I imagine people were saying, 
You want to run that by me again? That could be our reaction, just reading that, knowing the context. He was talking to Jewish people that had lived their entire life, and the the fathers before them, under the influence, under the rule of the Pharisees. They were the experts of the law. They were the rulers, the religious rulers. They were the ones that called the shots. They were the ones that made sure those jots and tittles were were honored and abided by and lived according to. So for Jesus to say this, this would have been the most shocking thing that Jesus said in the sermon up to this point, the most shocking thing he had said in his ministry up to this point. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. This would have been similar to the shockwave of later in the ministry when Jesus said to the disciples how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven. It's easier for a camel to enter the eye of the needle. And the disciples, with that analogy, they were like, well, then who can be saved? Do you remember Jesus' response? Well, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Same kind of thing, same kind of gravity of statement. And the reason that this was so shocking and astounding is because the people in that original context knew the way the Pharisees did things. There were already over 600 commands in the Old Testament, already, just just by the nature of the law. As God gave it, provided it, the Mosaic law already had over 600 commands. But the Pharisees came along and created over 50. 1,500 additional laws because, you know, 600 and some weren't enough. They created 1,500 more additional laws that the people had to obey, and they made sure to enforce that. And it wasn't limited to the first century Pharisees either, this mindset. In early 1992, a group of Orthodox Jews let three apartments in their Orthodox neighborhood in Israel burn to the ground. The reason they let that happen, the reason it happened is because while the fire was going on, they asked a rabbi whether a telephone call to the fire department on the Sabbath violated Jewish law. You see, Jews still devoted to the traditional and the Pharisaical way of applying it are forbidden to this day. They are forbidden to use the phone on the Sabbath because doing so would break an electrical current, which is considered a form of work. Not making this stuff up. You can't. You can't make that up. And side note, unfortunately, you know them as well as I do. There's many, many believers that are not Orthodox Jews living in Israel, that live the Christian life the exact same way. But I digress. That's another message. So in the half hour, in the half hour it took for the rabbi to think about this and decide, yes, it would be okay to call the fire department, the fire spread to the two neighboring apartments and all three were destroyed. That's... Pharisaism, that's legalism. And here's what Jesus had to say about the Pharisees' legalism that he is pointing to in this statement in verse 20. Here's what he had to say in another time in his ministry. 
in a very confrontational manner, I might add. Matthew 23, 23 through 28, he says this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You pay a tenth of mint, dill, and cumin, and yet you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things should have been done without neglecting the others. For those of you who are trying to get to that passage that I referenced, let me give it to you again. Matthew 23, 23 through 28, if you want to follow along here. So he said, you've neglected the more important matters. You've neglected justice and mercy and faithfulness by so focusing on those minute details. These things, he says, should have been done without neglecting the others. Verse 24. Blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but gulp down a camel. Jesus liked to use camels as metaphors, apparently. The shock of it, you know. Verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup so that the outside of it may also become clean. Verse 27, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside... You are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's what he was saying. Followers of of him, disciples, citizens of the kingdom, had to surpass. That's what he meant. You have to surpass the appearance of righteousness that the Pharisees and scribes have. You need to surpass the fake holiness that they have that is symptomatic of them if you have any hope of entering the kingdom of heaven. In other words, it's about sincerity, not showmanship. Why was he so forceful and direct about this? Because, because salvation, becoming a citizen of Christ's kingdom, that's what salvation is, it's becoming a citizen of Christ's kingdom. Salvation is the result of repentance from sin and self-righteousness. Don't miss that second part. A lot of people do. It's easy to focus on the sin. You know, that's obvious. That's blatant, right? Self-righteousness is a lot more subtle. A lot more subtle. But we have to repent of both for salvation to occur. Salvation is the result of repentance. We understand that from sin and self-righteousness. It's really all about what Jesus said at the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount with the first beatitude that we looked at as we started the series. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's what he's talking about here. You've got to realize, recognize, and admit your own spiritual poverty and the fact that no one else can remedy your situation but Jesus. You don't look to the law in, in its ceremonial, judicial 
way and trying to keep all those things. You know, it's not about trying to keep 600 and whatever laws or the 1,500 additional that the Pharisees tacked on. It's not about ritual. It's not about rules. It's about understanding we are utterly broken and helpless and only Jesus can make us whole. It's understanding that the righteousness in us, once we do come to Christ and we're given righteousness, the righteousness in us came from outside us. It's what Martin Luther called an alien righteousness. It's a great phrase. I love that phrase. An alien righteousness. It's alien to us. It's outside of us. It's not natural to us. It's foreign. We don't manufacture it. We don't produce it. We can't. We are given it as we come in spiritual poverty and humility to Jesus, saying, give me what I can't give myself. And he does. So it's remembering that, that the righteousness in us came from outside us. I want to give you two very, very powerful passages about that reality that prove that point. Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven says this, I, this is God speaking, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone, which we all have, and give you a heart of flesh. A heart of flesh that can be molded and shaped and bent towards God's own heart. I will place my spirit within you and cause you, notice that, I will cause you I, God speaking, I will cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Because we can't do that ourselves. We're not naturally prone to that. We don't naturally want to obey God's law and we don't naturally have the ability apart from Him intervening. But praise God for His mercy and His grace. He makes us new and He gives us a new heart and He gives us by His Spirit the ability to do what is right, to follow Him, to fulfill His commands. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And how did he do that? How did he bring that about? How did he fulfill that promise there in Ezekiel 36, 27? 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is the answer. This is the how that happened. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, it all comes down to to this. True holiness starts in the heart. True holiness starts in the heart. That's the point Jesus was making in verse 20. The kind of righteousness the Pharisees and scribes pursued and enforced wasn't true righteousness. Because it wasn't of the heart. It wasn't genuine. It didn't come from God. The one that sets the standard of righteousness to begin with. Jesus is much more concerned about inner holiness 
much, much more than external performance. And that's what he was calling all of his followers to surpass. The fake, the phony, the superficial, the self-absorbed and self-focused. That's what the Pharisees and scribes were living for. It was for themselves. It was to promote themselves. It was so people would look at them and say, oh, how holy, how righteous they are. But inside they were full of dead bones. Surpass that, Jesus said. You've got to surpass that kind of righteousness, that version of righteousness, which is not righteousness at all. And this all sets up what Jesus will say next in the Sermon on the Mount, which continues to get more and more eye-popping, jaw-dropping. And that's where we'll be next week. We'll pick up in verse 21. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount, that it is very much the kingdom manifesto. It's the guidebook of how to live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Christ. Help us to be faithful to live that out. Help us to live in light of what our Savior proclaimed and made so clear. Help us by the Spirit that you've given us, because apart from the Spirit's power, we can't do any of this. We can't do a thing about any of this on our own. Thank you for giving us the Spirit of God. Help us to apply his power, and to cooperate with him in the application of this truth in our lives. And I pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.